You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Garrisonovich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lolana, a literature enthusiast and a guy working in media. This is the podcast for people who want to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to know and understand these works. And if you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. All right, Matt, what are we getting into this week? This week, we got the uh, film episode. <laughs> the film. We got a we, we got a real good one, mm. as long as you're not the director, who uh, <laughs> did not think so. <laughs> This week, we're going to be covering Andrei Tarkovsky's 1972 film Solaris, which he once referred to as his least successful of his films. We're going to talk about why that is. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about wives becoming mothers. We're going to talk about German mysticism. We got a pretty packed episode here. I know. Just like Solaris is a pretty packed movie. And so that's that's the that's the Slavic literature pod guarantee that when you're covering great directors, we're going directly for the ones they hated. We're going for, yeah, that's just low-hanging fruit for us. <laughs> um, I know, low-hanging fruit of a, a two-hour and 40-something two minute movie. It's, I, I promise, it feels longer than it is. <laughs> <laughs> I love this film, but it feels longer than it is. It's such, it is, I, I will, before we get into it itself, I want to say it's very, um, I forget where I read this, but it's very trance-like, you know, sitting down and watching it, um, you, you do fall into like, it feels simultaneously shorter and longer than its watch time because it really does draw you in, but also you're very aware of, oh my God, how long have I been here? How long has this scene right. been going on for? Five minutes? Good God. Yeah, it's also one of those where you'll feel dumber watching it, but your friends will think you're smarter for having watched it. <laughs> right. So you kind of have that going for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. let's talk about why are we covering Solaris? People might be wondering if it's his, if it's his least favorite film, why are we talking about this? Well, honestly, I, I just wanted to talk about it because I like it. That's fair. What about you? Why do you want to cover Solaris? <laughs> well, Solaris, it's it's a it's like often as we talk about it, it is a almost genre defining film in the same category as um, Kubrick's Space Odyssey two thousand and one. They're often talked uh -huh. about in the same breath. But as we'll cover about cover in this episode, that's not really a good comparison, right? Two thousand one comes out, I think, in nineteen sixty nine. This is seventy two. Uh, they're very closely tied together, but and you know, superficially, they could be read as the same, but they are absolutely not similar, really, in content, even in the slightest. And um, if you've not watched before, it is worth watching. But uh, I think it's just worth talking about to kind of clarify um, this film, which Tarkovsky himself <laughs> seems to have hated that it, it was sci-fi or is included in the sci-fi genre. Yeah, I think that's fun. I didn't really want to get into like why why cover a Tarkovsky film because uh, if you if you don't really know anything about Tarkovsky, I feel like this probably won't be the episode for you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for, for me, it's kind of like a self-evident one. Sure. Essentially, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Yeah. And thankfully, he falls into our canon, so we can talk about him on the show, which is great. That's fair. <laughs> and I, I feel like every episode where I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. If you think about it, that's the exact same shot that Tarkovsky uses in whatever film. I can finally talk about those shots now. Right. There we go. It's about time. And in future, My time has come. <laughs> right. And in future episodes, when you have to make that comparison, you can say, instead of me making this point again, just go back to this episode. So by listening, you're already prepared for that. So good work. Well, we, we did. I literally did this yeah. when we covered Leviathan. And I was like, this is the exact same shot from Solaris. And I said I would post the screen grabs on Twitter. And then I didn't. So, oops. So this is the makeup for that. Just watch Solaris now. You'll get it. <laughs> right. Just carve out three hours of your, of your day uh, and watch Solaris. Yeah. Easy. Easy. Um, anything we want to talk about? I mean, Tarkovsky is Tarkovsky, but anything you want to uh, zoom in on before we kind of talk about Solaris itself for Tarkovsky? Uh, if you're interested in his kind of chronology, this, like you said, comes out in 72. So he's done Ivan's Childhood and Andrei Rublev uh, right before this. And he does Mirror and Stalker uh, after this. That's the end of his uh, Soviet films before it is nostalgia and sacrifice and so this is sort of the middle road tarkovsky mm -hmm. i guess it's interesting that this is not his his favorite film even though it's after some sort of progression of you know his own filmmaking 
uh, I, th- I think there's still plenty here to talk about. It might, it might not be his own favorite, but right. it definitely is uh, a student favorite from the courses that I've TA'd for on Tarkovsky. This is one that they like a lot. This and Mirror, for whatever reason, Mirror uh, students lap that one up. It's <laughs> infinitely more confusing than Solaris, but it's still good. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So, anything, anything else you want to cover about Solaris before we talk about what happens in the movie itself? Uh, I wanted to talk about how Tarkovsky did not like Kubrick. And I think that that's really funny that the only reason that these two films are linked was because it was marketed as like the Soviet space odyssey. And I, I don't think Tarkovsky took too kindly to that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't know his exact reaction, but based on everything else he feels about sci-fi as a genre and, and Solaris's inclusion in it, I can see him not taking it well. So Kubrick really admired Tarkovsky, like a lot. Mm. And in return, Tarkovsky said that Kubrick was cold and sterile. So, uh, well, his films were not him personally. Right. Although he might be, I don't know. Um, so that that's kind of the response that you get to that. So uh, I think that this is a really interesting film for us as a... As a you know, from the West, we have a really like developed sort of idea of what sci-fi is and what it looks like. Mm. And Tarkovsky just kind of puts this out and he's like, hmm, sci-fi? <laughs> <laughs> and so I think it'll be interesting to talk about as we go through whether sci-fi is like a helpful framework or if it's kind of a hindrance on, on its way to uh, something more. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tarkovsky definitely didn't think it was helpful, but I, I think I'm willing to I'm I'm willing to disagree with him a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit on that specific front. Yeah, I mean, to, to each their own. To each their own, right? I, I still like the film quite a lot. I, I yeah, me too, me too. But speaking of to each their own, you know, person or guest, as you will, let's talk about what happens in Solaris itself. So this is a long film, so we're going to cut down very briefly. But in short, we start in this kind of countryside estate. And we've got this guy who's dressed great, blue leather jacket. Uh, I forget mm. the color of his pants, but walking through this estate, lots of natural stunning. Estate. Stunning, yes. Uh, walking through this estate, and then he goes to meet inside. This is his. This is Chris Kelvin. He goes inside to meet with this cosmonaut Burton, and we get a little bit more background in that Burton is one of these cosmonauts from this. I think it's so. so Solaris is this planet that has been discovered at some point, and there's this ocean, uh, which you know the initial pilots who went in and uh, uh, and to see what's going on, kind of come back, kind of traumatized. I think one doesn't even come out at all. Um, and so this leads to this massive scientific inquiry into what's going on here. And for the most part, the bureaucracy doesn't seem to believe that something's actually going on there, but they believe that people who go there freak out. And so Burton, who was one of these original cosmonauts, shows uh, Chris Kelvin, who is going to go to the space station over Solaris soon, uh, this tape to kind of tell him, Basically, here's what you should expect in sort of a way to beg him to take him seriously, because not a lot of people do. And uh, what the tape is, is a recording of what he saw when he flew over the ocean. And, and his recounting is that he saw a giant, like, the son of um, the other pilot, but gigantic, uh, the pilot who died. And the film itself shows nothing. It just shows ocean, ocean uh, which is, in this flashback, everyone else everyone else sees too. So they don't take Burton too seriously. Um and also, Kelvin doesn't take him too seriously, and that leads to the two of them talking more and getting into an argument, and Burton, you know, taking off, basically being like, I don't even know why I came here. And then we follow Burton through, I no joke, five minutes of watching him in a taxi. <laughs> That's how this film goes. As he, it's good. Yeah, no, it's great. I love it. I love that scene. It was a very, it's a good moment for reflection. Um, it was the longest continuous shot ever put into a film, I think, in world cinema at that time. That's interesting. That's, yeah, I'd believe it. Yeah, yeah, you would believe it. Have you seen it, right? (laughs) I'd wager some money on that one. (laughs) So from there, we we follow uh, Chris as he he goes to the station. And as he gets in, there are supposed to be three people there, Gavarian, Sartorius, and Snout. And he gets in, and he notices this place is a... it's, It's very... It's a space station, very 1970s space station. I, I feel like that should convey what I mean, but, you know, lots of flashing buttons, dials everywhere. Um, it's very sterile in comparison to the family home we've just come from. And he uh, and our friend Kelvin can't find anybody. I'm sorry, I keep tripping over. I don't know when this happened. At some point in my notes, I made, uh, if you type K period, uh, it just inc- it replaces that with Khrushchev and on auto caps. 
and I keep I kept doing K period as as shorthand for Kelvin, but it's so now I just have Khrushchev and Caps all throughout my notes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, he does he does come to the space station at some point. Right? Right. Yeah. He comes he comes and he his guest is just corn. It's kind of weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so has he, he so Kelvin can't find anybody, and eventually he kind of hears this music and goes and he finds Snout, one of the guys who's been in the station for a number of years. And Snout does not look okay. He's kind of having this conversation. And he's like, hey, buddy, everything all right? And Snout turns around and says, hey, who are you? And he says, oh, I'm Chris Kelvin. I'm here. I'm the psychologist. I'm here to kind of check out the station. Where Where is the lead? Where is Gabarian? And, Kel- and Snout says, oh, well, Gabarian killed himself. And Kelvin's like, oh. And Snout says, like, yeah, look, hey, you're probably going to go see, going to go through a lot. Take some time. Go to your quarters. Get settled in. Also, hey, just a heads up. If you see anything, you know, it's real. Uh, uh, and you kind of really want to explain what he means by that too much. Um, he's telling him to act, act as if all is normal. And from there, we kind of go on into more of, of sort of the mystery of the film where uh, as he, f- you know, finds tapes in Gabarian's rooms and or Kelvin, I mean, is speaking to Sartorius, we find out that this C Solaris uh, has this creates what they call guests or basically these apparitions of a sort which are pulled directly from the psyches of each of the men and whatever Gabarian saw you know is what drove him to suicide and, and the film continues and what happens is Hari who is uh, Kelvin's wife who died or killed herself over 10 years ago at this point in the film comes back suddenly and Kelvin doesn't react too well the first time he, he blows that first apparition to space on a rocket after tricking her into it but Hariri appears in this time. My question was, yeah. was that his escape pod? Like, did he have one? <laughs> I, 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 at the end of the film, they seem to think going back to Earth is an option. So maybe they just have auto-loaded. Right. I don't know. I see BMs in there. It just seems like the uh, escape pods or rockets back would be a scarce resource. Right. Uh, I don't think Tarkovsky gave too much of a shit about the logistics of this station. No, he didn't. But they they endlessly interest me. <laughs> that, but, you know, a different director probably would have made that a little bit more important than just a side note. I think it's awesome that you get a sci-fi film where he's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great. It, no, it truly is. Um, My students, like, they, can, they can't wrap their, their minds around that. <laughs> Because we love to, you know, sit around and talk about, like, world building. Right. And Tarkovsky was like, I don't know, we're going to go float around the library for, like, five minutes. <laughs> and everyone else is so concerned with this idea of genre. And I think this is the same interview where he calls Solaris the least, you know, successful of films. He's also like, I only think there's one genre, film itself. <laughs> Everything else is yeah, secondary. Yeah, a bit of a purist, wasn't he? <laughs> right. So, Hari comes back. And uh, this, this time, and also of note... Hari has no recollection of anything of her own life. She only knows herself really in relation to Kelvin. But she's also physically a perfect recreation of the original Hari down to the the original Hari killed herself with a with an injection. Uh, and this apparition, this guest, also has that needle mark, but she has no recollection of killing herself. Uh, she has no recollection of her life outside of Kelvin, because as as the other characters explain, these things, these guests are not true individuals as we would understand them as humans. Rather, they are pulled. They are a pulled from your mind. So this Hari is one that only exists in relation to Kelvin because she, this Kel, this Hari is literally created from his perspective on her. Um, and over the next, I think it's like an hour of the film. This is sort of a process of humanization uh, that goes from you know initially you know kelvin like blasting this guest off into space and the second time around this new hari him kind of falling in sort of falling in love or because after his wife's death um he realizes that he loved her it's part of the reason why she wasn't doing too great beforehand uh, he is his he admits um he he grows to love this new hari as you know his own original wife even though the film repeatedly demonstrates she's clearly not human she's got no concept of pain when he tries to lock her in a room she just bursts right through like completely bloody it's like hey what's up where are we going um and at another like point dog. <laughs> anytime i leave the room <laughs> um yeah, another point after kelvin accepts her as a, a real person of a sort sartorius is like look she's not even a car let, take a blood sample she's not even a carbon based life form this is not your wife um but 
he's like she is and he really begins to treat her as a person and at the same time this Khari who initially comes into existence only as a reflection of Kelvin's uh, interpretation of her or his understanding of her slowly begins to build a an understanding of herself and an understanding of herself which stands op- outside of this the original Khari as she um, as I believe Sartorius tells her that the original Hari committed suicide and she understands that she's something else, um, she starts to engage more, to ask Kelvin more questions about it. She, I don't entirely understand. She at some point watches a film of his childhood. I don't entirely understand if that's literally a film or if that's her accessing some sort of memory. Obviously, she's created from his memories and the abilities of Solaris are not ever elaborated on beyond the, the ability to reach into their minds. Um, but she develops her own sense of personhood and again tries to kill herself, uh, but this time is brought back by Kelvin. And after uh, a very strange scene in which Kelvin has this very sweaty sleep uh, and uh, he has this dream of having a life back on Earth uh, with with Hari, of course, this time Hari is played, well, not of course, she's played by a different actress, and which is only remarked on by uh, Kelvin saying, "That's weird. I can't entirely remember your face." In this very, also I should note, very yellow scene, it's not very yellow. Literally, like everything is colored yellow. Um, and he goes through this whole sequence for a while before waking up and finding that a note from Hari, basically explaining that uh, there's this laser, what they call an annihilator, that I believe Snout was working on to basically destroy this. Uh, ability of Solaris to reach into their minds and uh, he was never able to make it work but Hari with her abilities with not being entirely human is able to finish it at the cost of her own life and um, suddenly when they all wake up and the station is a wreck and they note that the sea is no longer reaching to their minds everything seems normal and they um, sit back kind of chat about what are we going to do next let's go back to earth Um, and then the next scene we see Chris coming back home to his father's and father and mother's house. Well, his father's inside, interestingly, uh, being poured water being poured on him from above, which he does not seem to understand. Uh, and when his father sees him, his father walks outside, and Chris, still standing on the on the porch, falls to his knees and grabs his father's waist, which will be important. Uh, grabs his father's waist and kind of hugs him. And then the the camera pulls back and keeps pulling back up into the up into the sky and keeps pulling Where's back and keeps pulling back until he begins to, to see that this entire world is its vision imprinted on the surface of the sea of Solaris itself. And that's oh. where the but a, boom reveal boom. inception noise. Uh, that's where the film ends. <laughs> yeah. This film seems to take a lot from inception. <laughs> right. I think that actually you could say inception <laughs> is really where this whole thing started. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have Tarkovsky without uh, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> um, right. So, necessarily by that that explanation, we had to leave a lot out, but that's because it's we think it's worthwhile more to talk about specifics than to relitigate every individual moment of this film. Because this is, again, two hours and 40 minutes long. There's a lot of content here. And just go watch it. I mean, most of you have probably already seen it if you're here. Right. Or if you haven't, so you should take some good time on you. You're good on you. <laughs> So you should watch it. Okay, I think this is a good time for a break. We'll be back in just a second. This episode is brought to you, as always, by our listeners. You can support independent podcasting by heading to our website, slaviclitpod.com. You'll get access to the notes we use to make this episode, including links to all of the secondary sources mentioned. Sorry, I hit my mic with my pen. I was gesturing too wildly. If you want to support the show, but you don't want to spend any of your hard-earned space money, <laughs> you can join our email list for free at slaviclitpod.com or leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. Questions, comments, want to appear on our Office Hours podcasts? Drop us a line. You can reach our voicemail at 209-800-3944. Or you can also email us a voice recording or text question at slaviclitpod at gmail.com. We'll bring your question onto the podcast and do our best to address it. All right, back to our Japanese taxi. <laughs> uh, do you, Matt, do you mind if we start? I know there's a lot to talk about here, but Tarkovsky happened to happen to very helpfully write a book about his work called Sculpting in Time. Do you want to talk about some yes. of the things he goes over in his book there about Solaris uh, before we start going into our own materials? I just want to briefly mention Sculpting in Time generally. Sure, yeah, yeah. Because uh, I, I listened to a few podcasts on Solaris, or maybe only like one, because there really isn't a lot on Solaris. Right. And the one that I had listened to, uh, they, they didn't really mention this. I, I was looking for sort of a more kind of 
analytical something when I was kind of first watching it and I was going through it and I was hoping to find something that was kind of uh, helpful. And uh, you would be uh, amazed to find anybody who knew that Tarkovsky wrote a book called Sculpting in Time where he writes about his film theory, <laughs> uh, because most people don't seem to know that he did that. Uh, and, and so if, if you're interested in Tarkovsky and you have not read Sculpting in Time, you need to read Sculpting in Time. It's a wonderful, wonderful addition to all of his films, kind of with the exception of Solaris, because he really glosses over that one. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> a couple paragraphs talking about the acting and two paragraphs about the movie itself. Yeah, you get some cool photos, though. It, it's still good, though, for just his kind of approach to film hmm. and how it sets him apart from other directors. And also just like... Yeah, you have to be like a certain kind of guy to write your own book on your own film theory. <laughs> right. I guess if you're Tarkovsky, you get that right. Yeah, yeah. No, that'll kind of tell you where our starting point is, I think. Yeah. So I think that book itself, I think, well, actually, something before we even get into talking what he says about Solaris itself, I think an interesting point that I, when I was reading a couple first chapters of that book was that he, um, he speaks about cinema specifically in the era, I think this is written in the 80s at some point. Um, he talks about cinema as like, Oh, an art an art that has gone through a death and rebirth and that audiences have come to expect so much more now that we can no longer go back to the early days of like Soviet filmmaking where we could have relatively simple works and people would be amazed um, and you could as like the early many of these early uh, filmmakers did wanted to convey a message or at least were kind of told hey you know you need to convey an educational component not educational like you know, learning, but kind of like class educational. Um, and then he argues in this that cinema, it's no longer possible to have that single takeaway for all people. Uh, rather, what must happen and what the audience and director desires to happen is a dialogue to happen between the two. Um, and that is what must necessarily take place in filmmaking. So I, th I thought that was an interesting thing and kind of going forward and thinking about how how I watched his watch Solaris in this case. Do you mind if I read the two paragraphs he writes about Solaris? Just just so you know how he stands in the film. Sure, go ahead. All right, sounds good. Solaris had been about people, lost in the cosmos, and obliged, whether they liked it or not, to take one more step up the ladder of knowledge. Man's unending quest for knowledge, given, him, given to him gratuitously, is a source of great tension, for it brings with it uh, constant anxiety, hardship, grief, and disappointment. The characters were dogged by disappointment, and the way out we offered them was illusory enough. It lay in dream, in the opportunity to recognize their own roots, their roots uh, which forever link man to the earth, which uh, bore him. But even those links had already become unreal for him. And that's really all he has to say about the film, beyond talking about the actors in it. So, <laughs> as a baseline, we can understand Tarkovsky getting at here that he uh, it does not care about the sci-fi element. This is about a person's people's own quest in relation to themselves which you might have gotten a little bit from the summary of uh, all these fantastical elements these space stations mean nothing in the face of an alien presence coming to find its own sort of uh, sentience in a way its own understanding of itself right and lives uh, dogged by disappointments but anyway i don't know if there's anything you want to talk about more at that book specifically before we go more generally uh, i wanted to just kind of broach the eisenstein sure debate chronology if you will because essentially in Soviet cinema, pretty much, uh, you know, because Eisenstein was pretty much the first to ever do it uh, and one of the best to ever do it. So a lot of directors are either reacting to, uh, purposefully imitating or uh, reacting against, trying something different than Eisenstein was doing. And Eisenstein is most noted for his theories of montage that he develops and there's other people like Kuleshov that are working around the same time in the 20s as him. But what Tarkovsky is specifically saying here is he's kind of reacting against Eisenstein's idea of intellectual montage specifically and Eisenstein's kind of grand project to build a universal film language, which is a lot of what my own like dissertation work is on because uh, stuff kind of rips. It's really interesting <laughs> to me. Uh, is that line? Um, do you, did you write that in your in your thesis? Yeah, it's my subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff rips. <laughs> Montage in Soviet film, let it rip. <laughs> let it rip, baby. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he, he has a completely different uh, take, which is that, you know, the film almost has sort of a life or a rhythm of its own. And the director uh, sort of kind of, I don't know how you describe it, he sort of... Um, helps it along but that sort of like internal rhythm is already uh part of it cinema is a sort of pure art he says right that's it's 
its its own thing. For Eisenstein, cinema was not a pure art; it was an umbrella art. So other arts are supposed to kind of if be folded into cinema, uh, and the director takes this very firm, uh, firm hand in the editing, uh, in order to deliver, like you said, this ideological, this class-based message, and. Uh, the goal with intellectual montage is to kind of give a, uh, is to create a third meaning, uh, which is separate from the, you know, I feel like maybe I should explain intellectual montage if I'm going to use it. So in Eisenstein's film Strike, at the very end of the film, there's this, these shots that are uh, intercut of the, uh, of these protesters being brutally murdered by the czarist police and a cow being slaughtered at a butcher. They're, they happen at two different uh, chronological periods are completely unrelated. When these two are spliced together, it creates a third meaning. And this is, right, the meaning of these protesters being butchered, kind of, right, like cattle. And it creates this sort of third undepicted meaning. And that's what Eisenstein's really interested in, is how you create an undepictable, essentially, an undepictable meaning in cinema. And Tarkovsky's not really <laughs> interested in doing that because he's not interested in you taking one meaning away from his film. That's not the point of a Tarkovsky film is to walk out being like, oh, yeah, I got that. That was easy. <laughs> like I said, you walk out feeling dumber, and that's the point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and if you felt dumb watching it, then good. You were supposed to. If you felt like you got everything, then you're the idiot. I don't know how to tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, it's not an easy film. It's not supposed to be an easy film. Uh, it's not really supposed to be like mass media uh, in the way that Eisenstein was trying to be. Um, even though he ends up being, right, like one of the most famous directors of all time for doing that, uh, among many other things. Right. So th this is the kind of uh, debate and chronological break between Eisenstein and Tarkovsky, even though they're they're making films like very far apart. I can I can promise you for a very long time after Eisenstein that you know, his method uh, still kind of reigns supreme. And it really, it still does. Um, we still we still use these methods in film, advertising, everything. Which makes sense because Tarkovsky, in his own book, he, he differentiates the art which he is trying to make, or his idea of art, from a consumable. And he kind of puts the idea of what, he doesn't name um, Eisenstein, but he kind of points to that, like that very nature of that being, consumable by mass people as the very thing which makes it kind of not art in a way so tarkovsky is inherently trying to make difficult stuff that people on the whole are not gonna like um like it it is art in its own way and it also is art because when eisenstein's doing it it's the he's he's really like the first to do it and so it's interesting in that way but right we're like 50 years on from that and so tarkovsky's like we got we have to do something different and and right he's working in the soviet union so it's honestly unbelievable that a lot of these films are made and that's like kind of a separate conversation but just the uh the fact that that he is working in uh sort of such a restrictive system i wouldn't agree that it's uh, as restrictive as people make it out to be but it is restrictive nonetheless uh and he makes these films that so don't fit within that system is fascinating and what's even more fascinating is after he leaves the soviet union his films don't really do that well i i would disagree with him in that his his later films his last two that he makes outside of the soviet union are not his best mm. ones and i think that is the general consensus i believe uh to be the case which is just an even like more interesting kind of tidbit but i digress no it's interesting i think it's also kind of funny that he opens his book on several letters he gets from people mostly angry ones um, I, I, the idea of Tarkovsky, like they'll identify themselves as like, yeah, I'm a steel worker out here in, you know, Krasnoyarsk or something. And the idea of Tarkovsky <laughs> sitting down and like reading a, a steel worker's letter about how he hated his movie and being so mad that he put aside to put it in a book. is just so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's just, it's just something you, you, you wouldn't see. Today. No, <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it's, it's endlessly entertaining it is it is and you, you know i say read the book but it, it probably won't help anyways because he's really vague in most of the book but it's still worth reading it's it won't help you necessarily understand solaris better but it will help you understand kind of what he's trying to do better so when you walk away and you feel dumber you're like all right well let's have a dialogue that was the point. <laughs> <laughs> right um but speaking of feeling dumber let's talk about the film itself 
you've got you got a lot of stuff to talk about. I find this is really fascinating. Do you want to start anywhere? Oh, I don't know about that. I, you got a lot more to talk about than most people who watch this film have to talk have to say about the film. Uh, haven't really qualified that way. Um, is -hmm. there anywhere in particular you want to start? Uh, I feel like I have to start with my my acknowledgement on my knowledge, uh, which is partially my own. And the professor that I took the Tarkovsky course, Ilya Kutik, uh, who was a personal friend of Andre and knew him pretty well and kind of grew up sort of alongside this family. Uh, I learned a lot from him in this course, uh, so, you know, if you do happen to be at Northwestern and have the opportunity to take the course, you should. Uh, but so a, a lot of the random factoids that I that I have, uh, some of them come from this class. A, a lot of them were my own kind of interest stuff that I found. But uh, so, some of the stuff on like the mysticism of it, I'm not sure I would have stumbled on my own here. But the, the mysticism is one of the most important parts, I think. And I, I could just jump into mysticism if you want. Let's jump right into it. Now... Sci-fi as a whole, I know we said sci-fi sucks, but... Let, <laughs> I didn't say me. that. I like sci-fi. Uh, I, I heard you say sci-fi sucks. <laughs> I heard it. Um, <laughs> um, usually, I would say it, it involves going a place or, you know, something coming to a place. And Tarkovsky says, no, we're, we're, going, into, we're going into humanity, basically. Mm. And so... Solaris, I think the, the name comes from the Latin Solus, this sort of sun-like planet. And in medieval mysticism, the sun is this representation of the human soul. And so Solaris is not really that much of an expedition into uh, some place or some, you know, sci-fi, some realistic sci-fi exploration story. No, it's about the people that are in the story. And that's what's kind of like makes it almost like the anti-sci-fi uh, in in some way. And so as we explore Solaris, the planet, and as we see uh, Chris and Hari interact, we're kind of asked to explore what constitutes this idea of a soul, right? What makes us us? What makes us human? And, you know, what separates us from everything else? And so that is kind of what that exploration is in the film and that's why when you go in expecting 2001 a space odyssey you're gonna think wow this is a really long shot of me sitting in a japanese taxi (laughs) right uh yeah and i think it's really interesting to build on that and i i do not think this is the mindset here but that early scene i mentioned of burton showing this committee this tape of what he saw when he was flying into around the sea of solaris it almost feels like a sort of rebuttal to like sci-fi 2001 or your expectations where we've got these fantastical things happening as a result of Solaris, but those things are not capturable by technology. A camera is put on them and you've got, and this is, this is a fascinating scene because it's dead silent, not a cough, not a shoe scrape, not a bit of music, just silent footage of a sea. And there is no ability for the community to tell that what Burton has gone through is real at all. And when we get to the station too, Chris is entirely blindsided by these guests that are on the station because these two originally three scientists who've been there are entirely unable to account for them and have not been reporting those things these these phenomena which in many other sci-fi films being sci-fi films are interested in engaging with them scientifically or you know with the appearance of scientific uh you know appeal is entirely absent of this film this is this phenomenon can only be experienced personally and is only experienced personally you put a camera on it and literally doesn't even appear yeah, Tarkovsky probably wouldn't have been a big STEM guy, I don't no. think. <laughs> well, he does. I think he, he he draws an interesting comparison to what he sees as the purpose of science, of science trying to reveal the world, uh, you know, around us. Uh, and he kind of says, well, art's kind of like that, but opposite. <laughs> <laughs> um, he says that over the course of many pages, and I don't think that entirely carry, can, stands up to his full argumentation, but the book's there if you want to read it. I, I think that it's... It is a really good opening because I actually, it's sort of, you know, playfully poking fun at Soviet bureaucracy and the Soviet system. But it's what I say to my students, too, is it's making fun of us just as much as it's making fun of them. Hmm. You know, it's it's making fun of, of any sort of a culture that takes empirical analysis so seriously uh, to the point that there can't be anything unexplained by, you know, our idea of mm-hmm. science. And 
I I would say we do this. I mean, just as bad, and it's it's just pretty funny. It's all. funny. It's a good bit. That's all I gotta say on that. <laughs> right, which is where we start. Notably, is where we start with Chris Kelvin. Is that where Burton shows him this film and says, "Hey, you have to believe me. There are things out there that we do not understand." And Chris pretty much blows him off and says, "Look." <laughs> all right i all i saw was just ocean and that's all it is he is this he is the rational scientist he's the psychologist he deals entirely with the rational which is what will quickly become unraveled and, and almost immediately go to the wayside as he goes to the station mm-hmm. i mean before he even goes even he like burns his research notes which uh he's <laughs> he's he's unable to accept things that which I think, as I understand it, he was researching Solaris and maybe was even engaging with some of those less rational things. But when he's going to the station at this point, he is, you know, because of this all this other knowledge, which clearly is there, because it cannot square with his, as you say, understanding, his empirical understanding of reality as well. Okay, uh, I guess we have to burn it. Yes. Now, you'll probably note the, uh, uh, how busty the film is, the pure amount of busts that appear, that appear, that appear. Sure in houses, libraries, uh, places like this. Now, if, if I'm not mistaken, the film is kind of already giving you some insight into what's about mm-hmm. to happen. Uh, a, a lot of the busts that I was able to, to see uh, were busts of Plato, mm. I believe. Now, I am not a 100% expert, but the sort of uh sort of main takeaway that would be applicable to the film uh the idea that you know things can't necessarily be destroyed because images and ideas they're they sort of are pre-existing and therefore can't be destroyed um compared to aristotle who believes yes they can right so uh if you had a hard drive with the slavic literature podcast on it and you destroyed it uh well according to aristotle it ceases to exist but uh, like I believe, according to Plato, the idea of the Slavic literature podcast is sort of, you know, independent of its materiality, right? right? It's sort of, you know, it's pre-existing the Slavic literature podcast as such. Uh, right, right. And so this is sort of what's kind of uh, being played with in the film, right? You know, thing, things can be destroyed, but, you know, can they can they really? And when when you come to a, a culture that is so materialist like this the soviets were it's people you know can't accept it there's this sort of dissonance that arises when you know anything can't literally be explained so think about that (laughs) so think about that um there's another let me know if you want to go slightly off this point but something there's something you mentioned to me we were talking about this before we started is the way that tarkovsky has integrated other visual arts especially paintings into this film into some really pivotal moments too um i was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that that is a great question cameron thank you very much <laughs> for that so there are some really some really good uh shots here and the the whole thing is kind of like reconstructed on sort of these eternal visual motifs which is super interesting and um why he does it is because he's trying to engage with these questions which are eternal and have been around basically mm. forever and yeah my my students didn't quite get this they were kind of like why does he care so much about visual <laughs> right. art and i said i can't help you i'm sorry uh i have to go uh, i i don't get paid enough <laughs> I, I didn't say that. <laughs> right <laughs> so there there's there's a few um recreations of famous paintings that take place in the film uh the first one or i guess the last one chronologically in the film you've already noticed is the uh rembrandt's return of the prodigal son uh when chris is hugging his father on the solaris island at the end and it is sort of you know shop for well not shop for shop it is the shot of you know this painting there is the Repeated image, I see it twice. The Lamentation Over the Dead Christ by Andrei Matenya. It's repeated at least twice in the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I guess I can post these on Twitter this time because I already have them done (laughs) for a PowerPoint that I made. So I can show them if people, you know, want to see that that good stuff. And then, of course, this 
this one of the of the tea cup on the table in the rain next to the apple. Um, that is not a you know specific visual piece, but a, a biblical theme that it, that it comes in from Matthew twenty six. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Um, kind of sort of relating to right, Christ's suffering. Um, a lot of these are, you know, taken from the Bible. And then you have Rublev's Trinity, which, you know, makes an appearance uh, not... I don't, I don't believe it makes an appearance, like, in a visual recreation, but it is literally in the film. Uh, Chris is leaning against the ledge that has the, the an icon of the Trinity there, which that's a whole just separate can of worms. <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I looked like the It's Always Sunny you know, right. if Charlie in the mailroom trying to explain <laughs> that one to my students whenever that comes right. in. Right, <laughs> right. That's fair. I mean, especially that ending, that painting, that Return of the Prodigal Son. Um, I mean, I, you know, if you're familiar with the story of the Prodigal Son, I think th- what that means goes without, like, saying that, that comparison to that note. But, you know, if you're not familiar, what, what happens is that, you know, the Prodigal Son is that he gets this guy, this landowner, has uh, he, his, he's got two sons, and one son says, hey, father, I know you've got an inheritance for me. Could I have it now? The father says, sure. And that son goes off and he spends some number of, of months to years using that money up on gambling and drinking and living a great life. And then one day, but eventually he runs out of money, but he doesn't know what to do. And one day the father's walking along and he sees this guy on the ground. He's like, goes over to help him. And he realizes that this, you know, emaciated, dirty man is his son. And he brings it back home. And he orders, you know, a feast to be had. And he says, look, you know, my son was gone and now he's back. And the, the other brother is like, hey, whoa, hey, hold on. Wait. So he took his inheritance and he spent it all you know, frivolously, and then you find him, and then you're going to welcome him back with a party? What, what, what? That's not right. And his father says, look, well, be that as it may, this is my son. He was dead to us, and now he's back, and that is cause for celebration. Um, and then they can continue on with that. And I think that's interesting because it's, it is... Uh, in its own way, almost like a repudi- uh, like a, an argument against this rational response of, you know, you get this brother. You might understand the brother's point of like, hey, this guy did not make the right decisions. Why are we still, you know, accepting and pulling him back in as readily in the story message of that story was, you know, it's not about it's not about these rational decisions. It is about finding joy in the individuals and people in our lives in a way. And then I mean, that's one way you could take the story. That's how I take the story. And that's how, you know, that shot drawing that explicit comparison really seems to hammer some of these themes home themes home for me at least well it's also um sort of a uh instruction in that a uh, true sort of honest mm. return to god he will always welcome you back. sure yeah and a, a lot of this film especially with the trinity kind of making this appearance has to do with kind of trying to reestablish this sort of harmony between people i think uh, and that's missing the people that's or, or at least the in, in the case of the protagonist, the fact that Hadi comes back, um, there was an imbalance in that relationship that has not been reconciled. Um, you look at Gibrayan, he kills himself not just because he's haunted by the reoccurrence of the guests, but because he thinks that he's the only one seeing them, and he bears that burden alone. Uh, and so it, it, he breaks the sort of right, the trinity of people who are on that ship with him. Uh, and, and so that's why, to me, these biblical themes are so important for Tarkovsky. It's not like we don't need to know more about Solaris. We need to know more about ourselves first. And that's really what's making people unhappy. It's not that there are like weird sci-fi things happening. Right. It's that we're just already unhappy. And we're already we already have like some sort of like really serious imbalance in our lives. It, and that's why it continues to be like a good film, right? Like you don't watch now and um, discredit it because it's not uh, accurate sci-fi or realistic sci-fi. I, I, quite frankly, the sci-fi stuff is ridiculous. I mean, Chris is uh, doing a rocket ship blast off wearing a yellow mesh shirt. <laughs> like, why, like, how would that be good? No, this is um, a better vision of the future but, than we have. I think if we spent more, I, th- I think it is. I think if we spent sent yeah. more astronauts into space, just like wet mesh shirt, leather jacket, it would be, it'd be, we'd be in a better vision of the future. Right. I think there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> um, but no, that's why the film continues to be watched today, and why people think that, uh, you, you know, it's like one of the greatest films of all time. And again, I don't want to get into every single specific recreation of visual mm-hmm. art because. Yes, <laughs> there's so do. much. Uh, 
it, there's so much of it. Like the whole film is structured on these visual components. And that's like kind of to me also inherently refutes the sort of um, empiricist basis of the society in which the film takes place. Right. It kind of, you know, not not everything is based on linear progress. Uh, the progress in the film is sort of a circularity, if you will. The action keeps coming back to right these pieces of visual art, these paintings, these biblical themes that have, they, they've already they've already happened, and and they've been happening even before they were painted and made. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, and so it's it's like engaging with that in such a, a deep and interesting and kind of provocative level, really. Yeah, I mean that's something that he or not he. I mean Tarkovsky does write the script, not alone, but. In, in one of the really interesting moments of the film for me, they're all having kind of a wake for Gabarian. And interestingly, it happens in a library, which, uh, as my understanding from, you know, of course, this is based on uh, uh, Stanislav Lem's, you know, book of the same name. Um, this is this is not something that happens in that book. So much of this film does not happen in that book. Lem was not super happy with this script. Uh, but as they're as they're kind of sitting there in this library, which is entirely naturalistic, very 1970s wood paneling, no sign of technology whatsoever, um, they... Uh, they propose a toast and i think this is snout but snout i believe says in this situation mediocrity and genius are equally useless we have no interests in conquering any cosmos we want to extend the earth to the borders of the cosmos we don't know what to do with other worlds we don't need other worlds we need a mirror we struggle for contact but we'll never find it we in the foolish human predicament of striving for a goal that he fears that he has no need for man needs man let's drink to gabarian to his memory even though he got frightened. And uh, this is all happening while Chris, well, Chris is paging through a copy of Don Quixote. To, like the, <laughs> the minutia of what we're, you know, and you know, of, of all these small points and all these things, it, we could go on forever with them. It's, there's so much significance in, in, the, in these small details. Yeah. Um, there, there is. I mean, the library scene in general is kind of the climax, I think. For me, it's, it's the scene of Harry staring at the painting of the hunters in the snow right and if you will indulge me please and my german mysticism (laughs) mysticism mysticism so i believe that tarkovsky was influenced or interested in this theologian mystic master eckhart i was a german mystic and he had this idea that you know, hearing was the language of the soul. And if you notice in the film, there are a lot of ears. Uh, there are a lot of uh, zooms, ins on ears. And this, I believe, is why. Um, because this has to do with how we reach the soul. So when Hare is looking at the Hunters of the Snow painting in the library, she not only sees it, but she hears it. Uh, it's deliberately shot from her perspective. No disagreement on that, uh, or at least it switches to being shot in her perspective. And then sound starts to play as she's looking at the different details on the painting. And she even comments on, uh, you know, how when Chris starts to talk to her, she says, oh, sorry, I kind of, you know, like zoned out there for a second or, you know, whatever she says. I don't know exactly. Um, but we know that we're sort of in her own trance, right? And so if hearing is this sort of language of the soul, if this is what sort of makes us human, then this can be read as the moment where Hari actually develops a soul. And so to me, this is the kind of climax of the film, right? She's done it. Um, And that's super interesting. That is interesting. It's kind of funny. I was actually going to talk about that same scene. That's funny. From a different, slightly different angle. Uh, This is taking this point from... um, this is from a piece called The Science Fiction Films of Andrei Tarkovsky. I'm sure I saw the title you would hate by Simonetta Salvastroni. And uh, this author takes that same scene, takes a slightly different approach, and they, they take a, a page from uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, who's an Austrian philosopher. Um, and, and from his, I believe this is the second book, Philosophical Investigations, he writes the this idea of how adults can experience the world in changing ways, even though the world doesn't change around them. And he writes, I contemplate a face and suddenly notice its likeness to another. I see that it has not changed, and yet I see it differently. I call this experience noticing an aspect. Um, and this author ties that, this, this same scene of looking at this painting and taking it not for itself, but for, you know, something. And this author ties it in connection to um, Hari or us as if you're kind of watching this 
vision of childhood that we see of Chris earlier, where he's like with his father and um, and sees this scene and is able to become human and in different sense from what you're talking about, but become human by making these novel connections instead of just existing as this creature moving on. So. I, no, I don't. Not uh, your voice is interesting too, but I think, I, regardless of how we get there, I agree with the basic point that this is the moment that Hari is becoming her own human character, and she does assert that. I believe immediately afterwards, Sartorius, who is never kind and is always trying to assert these aren't real, she says like, you know, Yachilabek, I'm a human. You're very cruel in the moments after when he continues to assert that, and I think you're right that this is the climax of the film and however we get there this is the moment where she becomes well as long as we can all agree that i'm right i think <laughs> right. i think we've established i'm right that's all yeah, i hear i think we've established that's the, Sorry, that's the important talking? part all i hear was that i'm right <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so then she kind of uh takes off and then you know after that is when she a- attempts suicide you know this this hurry, re- re- history repeating itself um before she changes she, she makes her own decision and changes the path of everyone else to a certain degree, I guess that depends on how you read the ending and how Chris <laughs> maybe doesn't actually, um, that his fate is not really changed, but. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that's, I find his ending less interesting than her ending, personally. Yeah. I think that with her ending, there can be no doubt that she does become human. Yes, yeah. Uh, in that she sacrifices herself uh, out of love for uh, everybody aboard especially chris and this is a completely irrational thing to do and i think i i, I don't really know that much about other species but it, it seems to me that that is a human uh, only a human thing to do i think that's kind of the point right like other species uh, don't do that mm-hmm. they have some sort of you know self-preservation instinct right uh we will willingly throw aside our own self-preservation instinct uh on a sort of irrational basis that can't be explained and so the conclusion of the film rests on something that cannot logically be explained, which is, again, kind of, right, the point. Right. And that's how, you know, kind of how I read it, which is why it's, you know, kind of provocative in that way. I know. Yeah, I agree. I agree. By becoming human, she takes the 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 stance that animals often don't do, but humans do of, of well, I guess animals will do this, but like choosing to sacrifice herself, which all the human characters have have are in a total state of listlessness. They aren't choosing to engage with each other at all. She's the only one who shows concern for the others, really. No, she's uh, the most human. Yeah, uh, in a way. I mean, (laughs) the rest of them are are saying, you know, forget her. She's not human. She's a neutrino reaction. You know, let's just take blood samples. I'm just going to perform surgery because whatever, she'll heal. Yeah. Um, Who cares (laughs) if she feels pain? It's humane. She'll heal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean... You know, like, I don't know how you could argue that's more human than what she does. Yeah. And I think it's very funny that, too, at the very end, after, I believe this is after she sacrifices herself, Snout and Chris are kind of chatting, and Snout just kind of throws off on the offhand that the happiest people are the ones who are not interested in these cursed questions that we're talking about. Uh, When a man is unhappy, when a man is happy, the meaning of life and other eternal themes rarely interest him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, and these these characters who are all deeply unhappy have have spent this entire time trying to wonder what this means for them. I think that's kind of true, I mean, personally, but it also, like, it it does feel kind of Tolstoyan in that way. I I don't know who, you you know, like, He specifically invokes Tolstoy in that, which is very funny. He does. does. Which, of course, you know. But for the benefit of the audience. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, continue. I don't, I don't know if that's like what he's working with. But, you know, when Tolstoy kind of concludes and he's like, I don't know, just be happy doing chores. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of feels like what what the film is, is sort of getting at. Yeah. And that, it's really, you can ask all the questions you want, but, you know, maybe maybe start by maybe start by those around you you know right or dare i say yourself indeed 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 Indeed, i may say yeah i think that's um i forget there's another paper i read um i'm not gonna go too much into it i mean but this is the fascinating title back to the house two on the chronotopic and ideological reinterpretation of lem solaris and tarkovsky's film by uh rumiana delcheva and edward vlasov i don't know if you necessarily i don't don't know if i found the whole thing that interesting but i think it is an interesting point that they make which is that unlike uh lem's book which is a pretty linear straightforward you go from earth to solaris and that's like you know from earth to the stars um in 
in a way, even though it's not true, but the perception of, of what happens in Tarkovsky Solaris is from Earth to the stars, back to Earth again, although, of course, this is its own sort of Earth, uh, in that we return again to the Earth that bore us, because the as, as these characters assert, we're not really looking for things out in the universe. We're looking for ourselves, and we are eternally replicating ourselves, and even though we're out here in the space, we're still bringing Don Quixote and busts of, of Plato and all these things, because it's... It's all about us in the end. The search for the searches for for new knowledge is very anthropocentric, and if it doesn't, if it this knowledge as we've talked about doesn't jive with our anthropocentric understanding of things, then we discard it. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I I think that's all I really wanted. Well, actually, there's so much more to talk about, but there's a lot of also like borderlands of things that I'm interested in, but I don't really understand, so I don't want to talk too much about them. But are there any like? There's a lot. Yeah more to go into on this but for me this was like the the most interesting couple of things that i could talk about in an hour but i could talk for like 20 hours on this movie (laughs) well okay we're coming up to the end of our hour so how about i I get you this how about a couple things that when people watch this film if they have not yet watched it or if they want to go back for a rewatch you you cannot fully or don't you can either not fully explain or don't fully have the time to explain but think they should pay attention to are there any elements that you'd want to point to oh i think one that we talked about before here before we started recording was color yes yeah uh not even gonna dip my toe into that one (laughs) at the moment just you know pay attention to it right i well actually i want to dip it very briefly that there i think it's very funny we had the same moment that we both there's a lot of blue early in the film and we were both racking our minds and and we watched this at different times but apparently we both had the very same thought at some point in the film of what does blue mean oh wait is he just trying to show that it's night and I'm still, I don't, I don't, we never figured out where we came from that, but I think it's funny we came to the same, we had the same thought yeah, on that yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, yes. Uh, nature. Nature. Mm-hmm. Nature generally. Um, horses. Tarkovsky loved horses, so, you know, that's there. Uh, in our relationship to nature is extremely important. And if, if you understand that, then you understand why he put the Japanese highway in the middle of the film. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um for five minutes that's five minutes much, come talk about it you... with us in our discord i'm not right. gonna go into it all here maybe we'll have to do a second episode who knows right we might have to we just might have to and the last one i would say sound mm-hmm. it's so sparse that normally sci-fi you associate with um you know advanced technology that has just a lot of just a lot of sound right Right. Of course, yeah. we're used to soundtracks and scores and whatnot, and in addition to that, just the beep boop bop boop of sci-fi, <laughs> right? Like you know, space and stuff blasting off, and there's there's really not a lot of it in the film at all. Most of it's just as eerie, eerie quiet. Yeah. So think about it. Think about it. That's what Tarkovsky said. He said, "Think about it." <laughs> he said, "Think about it." Yeah. Mm-hmm. All good notes. I think the only thing I would add, in addition to that, I'm I'm gonna steal. I'm stealing this vague idea from your notes but the idea of memory oh. um oh yeah which is specifically in relation to one scene towards the end of the film which again putting back to color is entirely yellow i think we mentioned it before but where um chris has interaction with another Hari from his own memory who is an entirely different actress and you know it's remarked upon that she's like i can't really remember your face and they have this conversation which is as you note in your notes explored much more in the movie mirror um, but of course, I can't wait to cover that one. That <laughs> one is that one's probably my favorite production history. Yeah. Oh, I from the little I've heard, it's <laughs> it was just a cluster all the way through. <laughs> Might be a whole episode just on. Hey, here's what happened behind the scenes of Mirror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, good times. Good times. Good times. Well, all right, Matt. Before we completely wrap up, and I know there's so much more we could say about this, but look, we got to end it somewhere. So next week, we're bringing back an author, sort of from the archives. Uh, we're going to be reading Yachina Guzel once again, not, in fact, going back to Zuleika, but to her new book, or relatively new book anyway, Volga Tales. We're going to be covering parts one and two of uh, Volga Tale, which has uh, been a very interesting read so far, so I'm really interested and very excited to talk about it. And to help keep our show independent and for exclusive access to notes containing all the research that went into this episode, head on over to our website, SlavicLitPod.com. And before we let you go, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current supporters, Eric, Ben, Jeff, Mai, Daniel, Lou, Gary, Janice, Anne, Isaac, Emily, Caitlin, Yitza, Irini, 
and Pack Rob. The music used in this episode was Stare Kino by Peremotka. You can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify, and the links and spelling are in the show notes. You'll hear from us again soon, unless we don't come back from space. <laughs> 